Good afternoon. My name is Shalisha Bino, and this is St. Augustine's Sessions. For the third episode of the Lincolnville series, we are revisiting the life of Frederick Douglass, a lead abolitionist, speaker, and political figure that advocated for human rights, freedom, and equality. Excerpts from his memoir were taken from his best-selling book titled Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave. Frederick Douglass was born into slavery in Maryland in 1818. His mother was Harriet Bailey, but his father's identity remained unknown to him. Some historians believe that his father might have been his original owner, which was slave owner named Aaron Anthony. However, others believe that his father might have been his second owner, which was Thomas Old. However, that information seems to be lost to history. Douglas endured the harshest experiences during his time as a slave, and his memoir is filled with excerpts that describe his experiences. Frederick Douglass states, I have had two masters. My first master's name was Anthony. He was generally called Captain Anthony, a title which I presume he acquired by sailing a craft on the Chesapeake Bay. He was not considered a huge slave owner. He owned two or three farms and about 30 slaves. The overseer's name was Plummer. Mr. Plummer was a miserable drunkard, a profane swearer, and a savage monster. He always went armed with a cowskin and a heavy krugel. I have known him to cut and slash women's heads so horribly that even Master would be enraged at his cruelty and would threaten to whip him if he didn't mind himself. Master, however, was not a humane slaveholder. He was a cruel man, hardened by a long life of slaveholding. He would, at times, seem to take great pleasure in whipping a slave. I have often awakened at the dawn of day by the most heart-rending streaks from an aunt of mine, whom he used to tie up to the joist and whip upon her naked back until she was covered with blood. No words, no tears, no prayers from this gory victim seemed to move his iron heart from his bloody purpose. The louder she screamed, the harder he whipped, and where the blood ran the fastest, there he whipped the longest. He would whip her to make her scream and hush, and he would not cease swinging his blood-clotted cowskin until overcome with fatigue. I remember the first time I witnessed this horrible exhibition. I was quite a child, but I remember it. I shall never forget it whilst I remember anything. Despite the somber realities of his existence, Frederick Douglass remained determined to learn. He learned in secret how to read and write. This knowledge was considered dangerous because an educated slave was considered to be a great threat to the systematic oppression of that particular time. When reflecting on the method that he learned to write, he stated, The idea as to how I learned to write was suggested to me by being in Durgeon and Bailey's shipyard 
When the piece of timber was intended for the lard board side, it would be marked thus L. For the starboard side, it would be marked S. I soon learnt the names of those letters and for what they were intended when placed upon a piece of timber in the shipyard. After that, I met with any boy who I knew could write. I would tell him that I could write as well as he. The next word would be, I don't believe you. Let me see you try it. I would then make the letters so that I had been keen and fortunate enough to learn and ask him to beat that. In this way, I got many good lessons in writing, which is quite possible that I wouldn't have gotten any other way. Frederick Douglass made a brazen escape from slavery in 1888 by pretending to be a sailor and getting into a train in Baltimore, which was moving further towards Philadelphia. Frederick Douglass stated, It was the custom in the state of Maryland to acquire the free colored people to have what were called free papers. These instruments, they were required to renew very often and by charging a fee for this writing considerable sums from time to time were collected by the state. In these papers, the name, age, color, height, and form of the free men were described together with any scars or any marks upon which his person, which could assist in his identification. This device in some measure defeated itself and one man can be found to answer the same general description. Hence, many slaves could escape by personating the power of one set of papers. And this was often done as follows. A slave, nearly or sufficiently answering in the papers, would borrow or hire them till means of them he could escape to a free state and then, by mail or otherwise, would return them to the owner. The operation was a hazardous one for the lender as well as the borrower. A failure on the part of the fugitive to send back the papers would imperil his benefactor, and the discovery of the papers in possession of the wrong man would imperil both the fugitive and his friend. I was not so fortunate as to resemble any of my free acquaintances sufficiently to answer the description of papers, but I had one friend, a sailor, who owned a sailor's protection, which answered somewhat the purpose of free papers, describing his person and certifying the facts he was a free American sailor. The instrument had at its head the American eagle, which gave it the appearance at once of an authorized document. This protection, when in my hands, did not describe its bearer very accurately. Indeed, it called for a man much darker than myself, and close examination of it would have caused my arrest at the start. To avoid this fatal scrutiny on part of railroad officials, I arranged with Isaac Rolls, Baltimore hackman, to bring my baggage to Philadelphia just at the moment of starting and jumped upon the train car myself 
when the train was in motion. Had I gone into the station and offered to purchase a ticket, I should have been instantly and carefully examined and undoubtedly arrested. In choosing this plan, I considered the jostle of the train and the natural haste of the conductor and the train crowded with passengers and relied upon my skill and address in playing the sailor as described in my protection to do the rest. One element in my favor was the kind feeling which prevailed in Baltimore and other supports at the time to those who go down to the sea in ships. Free trade and sailors' rights just then expressed the sentiments of the country. In my clothes, I was rigged out in sailor style. I had on a red shirt and a tarpaulin hat and a black cravat tied in a sailor fashion, carelessly and loosely about my neck. My knowledge of ships and sailors' talk came much to my assistance, for I knew a ship from stem to stem and from keelson to cross trees and could talk sailor-like an old salt. I was well on my way to Haver de Grace before the conductor came into the Negro car to collect tickets and examine the papers of his black passengers. This was a critical moment in my drama. My whole future depended upon the decision of this conductor. Agitated though I was while this ceremony was proceeding. Still eternally, at least, I was calm and self-possessed. He went on with his duty, examining several colored passengers before reaching me. He was somewhat harsh in his tone and perpetuary in matter until he reached me. When, strange enough, and to my surprise and relief, his whole manner changed. Seeing that I did not readily produce my free papers, as the other colored persons in the car had done, he said to me, in friendly contrast with his bearing towards the others, I suppose you have your free papers, into which I answered, no sir, I never carry my free papers to see with me. But you have something to show that you are a free man, haven't you? Yes sir, I answered, I have a paper with the American Eagle on it and that will carry me around the world. Slaves were held here before the auction. With this I drew from my deep sailor's pocket, my seaman's protection, as before described. The merest glance at the paper satisfied him, and he took my fare and went on about his business. This moment was one of the most anxious I ever experienced. Had the conductor looked closely at the paper, he could not have failed to discover that it called for a very different-looking person, and in this case it would have been his duty to arrest me on the ruminant and send me back to Baltimore from the first station. When he left me with the assurance that I was all right, though much relieved, I realized that I was still in great danger. I was still in Maryland and subject to arrest at any moment. I saw on the train several persons who would have known me 
and any other clothes, and I feared they might recognize me even in my sailor rig and report me to the conductor who would then subject me to a closer examination, which I knew well would be fatal to me. Though I was not a murderer fleeing from justice, I felt perhaps quite as miserable as such a criminal. The train was moving at a very high rate of speed for that epoch of railroad travel, but to my anxious mind, it was moving far too slowly. Minutes were hours, and hours were days during this part of my flight. After Maryland, I was to pass through Delaware, another slave state, where slave catchers generally awaited their prey, for it was not in the interior of the state, but on the borders, that these human hounds were most vigilant and active. The borderlines between slavery and freedom were dangerous ones for the fugitives. The heart of no fox or deer, the hungry hounds on his trail in full chase could have been beaten more anxiously or noisily than did mine from the time I left Baltimore to the time I reached Philadelphia. In 1884, Frederick Douglass married an African-American woman named Anna Moray. The couple would go on to have five children, and she serves as both their support and comfort as he became actively involved in the abolitionist movement, speaking openly against slavery and its atrocities. Frederick Douglass was a champion of human rights, equality, and freedom, other than speaking publicly and writing about his accounts and perspectives. He also helped to organize the secret network of the Underground Railroad, which helped to ensure many African Americans receive their freedom as the call of war came to the Union. Frederick Douglass called them to arms during a speech, saying, When the first Rebel Canyon shattered the walls of Sumner and drove away its starving garrisons. I predicted the war then and there, inaugurated, would not be fought out entirely by white men. Every month's experience during these dreary days has confirmed that opinion. A war was undertaken brazenly carried on for the perpetual enslavement of colored men, whose logically and loudly four colored men to help suppress it. Only a moderate share of sagacity was needed to see that the arm of the slave was the best defense against the arm of the slaveholder. Hence, with every reverse to the national arms, with every exulting shout of victory raised by the slave-holding rebels, I have implored the imperiled nation to unchain against her foes, her powerful black hand. Slowly and reluctantly, that appeal is beginning to be heeded. Stop not now to complain that it was not heeded sooner. It may or may not have been best. This is not the time to discuss that question. Leave it to the future. When the war is over, the country is saved, peace is established, 
and the black man's rights are secured as they will be. History, with an impartial hand, will dispose of that and sundry other questions. Not criticism is the plain duty of this hour. Words are now useful only as they stimulate blows. The office of speech now is only to point out when, where, and how to strike to the best advantage. There is no time to delay. The tide is at its flood that leads on to fortune. From east to west, from north to south, the sky is ridden all over, now or never. Liberty won by white men would lose half its luster. Who would be free themselves must strike the blow. Better even die free than to live like slaves. This was the sentiment of every brave colored man amongst us. There are weak and cowardly men in all nations. We have them amongst us. They tell you this is the white man's war, that you will be no better off after than before the war. That the getting of you into the army is to sacrifice you on the first opportunity. Believe them not. Cowards themselves, they do not wish to have their cowardice shamed by your brave example. Leave them to their timidity or do whatever motive may hold them back. I have not thought lightly of the words I am now addressing you. The counsel I give comes from close observation from the great struggle now in progress and of the deep conviction that this, your hour and mind. In good earnest then, and after the best deliberation, I now, for the first time during this war, feel at liberty to call and counsel you to arms. By every consideration which binds you to your enslaved fellow countrymen, and the peace and the welfare of your country, by every aspiration which you cherish for the freedom and the equality of yourselves and your children, by all the ties of blood and identity which makes us one with the brave black men now fighting our battles in Louisiana and South Carolina. I urge you to fly to arms and smite with death the power that would bury the government and your liberty in some hopeless grave. Frederick Douglass's commitment to African Americans did not end with the Civil War. He continued to fight for equal rights, especially when it came to African Americans being given the right to vote and also supported the women's suffrage movement. He believed that women were also entitled to rights. In 1888, Frederick Douglass spoke with women in Washington, D.C. to encourage and empower them. Douglass commented, When I look around this assembly, I see the many able and eloquent women, full of the subjects ready to speak, and who only need the opportunity to impress this audience with their views and thrill them with thoughts that breathe and words that burn. I do not feel like taking up more than a very small piece of your time and attention, and shall not. I would not even now presume to speak but for the circumstance of my early connection with the cause 
and of having been called upon to do so by one whose voice in this council we all gladly obey. Men have very little business here, speakers, anyhow, and if they come here at all, they should take back benches and wrap themselves in silence, for this is an international council, not of men, but of women, and women would have all the say in it. This is her day in court. I do not mean to exalt the intellect of women above men's, but I have heard many men speak on this subject, some of them the most eloquent to be found anywhere in the country. And I believe no man, however, fit with thought and speech, can voice the wrongs that present the demands of women with the skill and the facts, with the power and authority of women itself. The man struck is the man to cry out. Women now feel wrongs as a man cannot know and feel them as he can know. What measures are needed to redress them? I grant all the claims at this point. She is her own best representative. We can neither speak for her, no vote for her, nor act for her, nor be responsible for her, and the thing for men to do on the premises is just to get out of her way and give her the fullest opportunity to exercise all the powers inherent in her personality, and allow her to do it as she shall elect to exercise them. Her right to be heard, to do, is as full, complete, and perfect as the right of any man on earth. I say of her as I say of the colored people, give her fair play and hands off. There was a time when perhaps we men could help a little. It was when this woman suffrage cause was in its cradle, when it was not big enough to go alone, when it had to be taken into the arms of its mother from Seneca Falls, New York to Rochester, New York for baptism. I then went along with it and offered my services to help it, for then it needed help. But now it can afford to dispense with me and all of my sex. Then its friends were few, now its friends are many. Then it was wrapped in obscurity, now it is lifted in sight of the whole civilized world, and people of all lands and languages give it their hearty support. Truly change is vast and wonderful. I thought my eye of faith was tolerably clear when I attended those meetings in Seneca Falls and Rochester, but it was far too dim to see at the end of 40 years results so imposing as this international council to see yourself, Elizabeth Caddy Stanton, and Miss Anthony active and alive in its proceedings. Of course, I expected to be alive myself, and I am not surprised to find myself so, for such is perhaps the presumption and arrogance common to my sex. Nevertheless, I am very glad to see you here today and to see this great assembly of women. I am glad that you are its president. No manufactured boom or political contrivance such as making presidents elsewhere has made you president of this assembly of women in this capital of the nation. You hold your place because of your imminent fitness and I give you joy 
stature or life and labors in the cause of women are thus crowned with honor and glory. Despite the warning given to us by Miss Anthony's friend against mutual admiration. There may be some well-meaning people in this audience who have never attended a woman's suffrage convention, never heard a woman's suffrage speech, never heard a woman's suffrage newspaper, and they may be surprised that those who speak here do not argue the question. It may be kind to tell them that our cause has passed beyond the period of arguing. The demand of the hour is not argument, but assertion. A firm and inflexible assertion, which has more than the force of argument. If there is any argument to be made, it must be made by opponents and by friends of women's suffrage. Let those who want to argue examine the ground upon which they base their claim to the right to vote. They will find that there is not one reason not one consideration which they can urge in support of men's claim to vote, which does not equally support the right of women to vote. There is today, however, a special reason for omitting the argument. This is the end of the fourth decade of the woman's suffrage movement, a kind of jubilee that naturally turns our minds to the past. Ever since this council has been in session, my thoughts have been reverting to the past. I have been thinking more or less of the scene presented 40 years ago in the little Methodist church at Seneca Falls, manager in which this organized suffrage movement was born. It was a very small thing then. It was not then big enough to be abused loud enough to make itself heard outside and only a few of those who sort had any notion of that little thing that would be able to live i have been thinking too of the strong conviction noble courage the sublime faith in god and man it required at the time to set the suffrage ball in motion the history of the world has given us Many sublime undertakings, but none more sublime than this. It was a great thing for friends of peace to organize in opposition to war. It was a great thing for friends of temperance to organize against intemperance. It was a great thing for human people to organize it in opposition to slavery. But it was a much greater thing given all the circumstances for a woman to organize herself in opposition to her exclusion from participation in government. The reason is obvious. War, intemperance, and slavery are open, undisguised, palpable evils. The best feelings of human nature revolt at them. We could easily make men see the misery, the debasement, the terrible suffering caused by intemperance. We could easily make men see the desolation wrought by war and the hell-black horrors of chattel slavery. But the cause was different in the movement for women's suffrage. Men took for granted all that could be said against intemperance, war, and slavery, but no such advantage was found in the beginning of the cause of suffrage for women. On the contrary, 
Everything in her condition was supposed to be lovely, just as it should be. She floated along on the tide of her life as her mother and grandmother had once done before. As a dream of paradise, her wrongs, if she had any, were too occult to be seen and not too light to be felt. It required a daring voice and a determined hand to awake her from this delightful dream. At this distance of time, from that convention at Rochester, and given the present position of the question, it is hard to realize more courage required to launch this unwelcome movement. Any man can brave when the danger is over, go to the front where there is no resistance, and rejoin when the battle is fought and the victory is won. But it is not easy to venture upon a field untried with one half the world against you, as these women did. Then, who are we, for I count myself in, who did this thing? We were few in numbers, moderate resources, very little known in the world. The most that we had to commend us was a firm conviction that we were in the right and firm faith that the right must ultimately prevail. The case was well considered. Let no man imagine the step was taken recklessly and thoughtlessly. Mrs. Stanton had dealt well upon it at least six years before she declared it in the Rochester Convention. Walking with her from the house of Joseph and thankful Southwick, two of the noblest people I ever knew, Mrs. Stanton, with an earnestness I shall never forget, unfolded her view on this woman question precisely as she had in this council. There was six and forty years ago, and it was not until six years after she ventured to make her formal, pronounced, and startling demand for the ballot. She had, as I have said, considered well and knew something of the reform she was inaugurating. She knew the ridicule, the rivalry, the criticism, the bitter aspirations which she and her collaborators would have to meet and endure. But she saw more clearly than most of us that the vital point to be made prominent and the one that included all others was the ballot. And she bravely said the word. It was not only necessary to break the silence of woman and make her voice heard, but she must have a clear palpable and comprehensive measure set before her, one worthy of her higher ambition and her best exertions, and hence the ballot was brought to the front. Frederick Douglass's compelling speeches, writings, and activism continues to inspire people to speak out against oppression and to support equality for all. The Lincolnville Museum honored his legacy by creating a brief expose about the post-resurrection era and detailing accounts of Frederick Douglass's visit to St. Augustine in 1898. In addition, a recreation of Anna Douglass's plum wedding dress was on display 
which was created by fashion designer Cassandra Bromfield. I hope that you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Lincolnville series. I hope that you will join us next time as we listen to more accounts of African-American leaders and pioneers that are recognized by the museum and the oldest city. Until next time, thank you.